0: Good evening to you all, very welcome. My name is Shane Mulhall and the title to the talk is Philosophy in the Family and the subtitle is Discovering the Universal Principles Operating in All Happy Families. So, let us look at things on a large scale first. The proposition is that without family there can be no nation and no civilisation. Gibbons said that the five main causes of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire were firstly, the breakdown of the family structure, secondly, the weakening of a sense of individual responsibility, thirdly, excessive taxes and government control and intervention, fourthly, seeking pleasures that become increasingly violent and hedonistic and immoral, Hedonistic being the only good of an action is the pleasure it derives. And fifthly, the decline of religion. And if an empire as mighty as the Roman Empire can be destroyed by these five factors, it is even more possible to destroy a nation with the self-same five. And these five are more and more prevalent today. And all of these five causes would be eliminated in an environment in which family is strong. Even the excessive taxes and government control and intervention would be undone as family is the natural welfare state. Only where family and community cannot or do not provide is there the need for extra government services. However, when it's possible for family to provide, it can provide at less cost and with love what government is providing nowadays. So the first question we have to face is who is in the family? And whom do we consider to be members of our family? Reflect when we make an important family decision, whom are included in the considerations? Normally if you ask the the man of the household, he'd say, well, my mother and father, my wife and the children. If you ask the woman of the household, she'd say, my mother and father, the husband and the children. But the full concept of family includes all relatives, pets and servants, if there are any, i.e. all those who benefit from and depend on the family unit. It also ranges over seven generations. So whenever you're making an important family decision, you take into account seven generations. (laughs) The current generation, the previous three and the three to come, the next three to come. And in this way, the wisdom and traditions of the past are passed on into the extended future. If we were setting out a park for the benefit of a town or a city, so if we were setting out, say, the Phoenix Park in Dublin, for the benefit of the people of Dublin or the benefit of the people of Ireland, what time frame would we have in mind? It wouldn't be ten years or fifteen years. We wouldn't be planting trees and saying, well, well, we want them fully grown in ten or fifteen years. In terms of a city, our time reference might be 500 to 1,000 years. In terms of a family, a full concept of family would be about 250 years. Now, why is family important and beneficial to society? Well, family is the building block of society. And just as to build a wall, you need a unit of construction, such as a brick To build a society, you need family. Why is this so? Why can't you build society with individuals? And the reason why is because family is the first step from individuality to universality. The individual moves from care for himself or herself to surrender of personal needs for the betterment of a larger unit. Without the surrender of personal interests, there can be no true functioning of society. For example, all agree to drive on the same side of the road or else driving would be impossible. I've just got back from India and they do all drive on the same side of the road, the side you're on. (laughs) It is a life-threatening experience to be in um, mechanised transport in India. But you can see, I mean, if people didn't agree to drive on the left-hand side of the road, driving would be impossible. Well, that's a surrender of maybe a personal preference for the betterment of a larger unit. Why is family important or beneficial to the individual? Well, the following five traditional benefits or functions of family show the importance and benefit of the family to the individual. And these are economic provision, protection, education the passing on of religious, philosophical, cultural and moral beliefs, and conferring status, i.e. like he or she comes from a good family, or you can trust them, they're hard-working people. The more a family fulfills these functions, the stronger it will be. Self-sufficiency for a family is strength for that family. And when these five functions are not provided for by families, or are provided more by government, then inevitably families must become weaker. Family must become less self-reliant and accordingly increasingly dependent on government, whose policies can change every four or five years or depending on the state of the economy. Governments themselves will initially become stronger but ultimately weaker, as it will become more and more difficult for them to govern weak families. For example, the increasing difficulty of maintaining (coughs) law and order throughout society, as we would experience today. So let us look at whether in today's times these five traditional functions are being strengthened or weakened by the way we are structuring our lives and society. Now a number of these modern day developments do have positive aspects and are undoubtedly necessary and good for a number of people. But the idea tonight is to consider them on a society-wide basis and see whether they strengthen or weaken the institution of family in a state. So in what way is economic provision for family members by the family less than in the past? Well, you have the social welfare increasingly provides what family itself would have provided creating an ever-increasing number of people who live in a world of dependency. Secondly, children are no longer economic assets of a family, but costly luxuries. And just when they could contribute economically to the family, the tendency nowadays is for more and more of them to leave home. So just when you could get a bit of the money back, they go. (laughs) So let us look at the second one, the provision of protection for family members. Now, by the family, is it less in today's society? Well, you have greater protection or provision of protection via government agencies. You have more and more charities such as Childline or Samaritans or Lifeline, all these sort of things. You have the increasing use of psychologists and psychotherapists and psychiatrists and counsellors all dealing with a variety of family difficulties but from outside the family. The evidence is of an increasing inability by the family to deal with its problems without outside help. The third thing with regard to education functioning in today's times we have the increased use of creches and preschools to educate the children also parental teaching has been further eroded by television Regarding to the passing on by members of the family of religious, philosophical, cultural and moral beliefs, we have the increased use of schools to provide moral education, i.e. sex, euthanasia, divorce, abortion, all these sort of things. The expectation nowadays is that schools should teach children about these things. The decline in the role of grandparents and the extended family and religious beliefs are now delegated to the church or school. Apparently it's only about two or three hundred years old since religion was (coughs) given over to the schools. The giving of religious beliefs onto the children was done by the parents up to about three hundred years ago. Anyway. Finally, with regard to the conferring of status by the family in today's society. Nowadays family income is much more important than family name. And families are less known as they live apart and also they move much more frequently nowadays before families lived in close proximity for many generations so their qualities were known to the community. Now when these five functions of family are fulfilled less than in the past then the need to love and to be loved becomes even more strongly felt and if this is not fulfilled and people are lonely in marriage alienated in daily family life, or unable to communicate to those nearest and dearest to them, then they will search for alternatives to family life, such as separation, divorce, infidelity, workaholism, chemical dependency, teen alienation, depression, and suicide. And notice how all of these are on the increase. You can see what a happy talk this
1: is.
0: (laughs) Anyway, so that's the overall scene that I think is a fair, well, a reasonable representation of how things are today. Leo Tolstoy said, happy families are all alike and every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. So happy families are all alike and every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. And if this statement is true, it means that there are principles that govern relationships. Principles that are universal, timeless and self-evident. And applying these principles brings the same happiness and deviating from these principles brings unique misery. Sri Shankaracharya, the sage to whom the school put its question, said that family is bound together by love, affection and sacrifice. And really all the content of the talk is based on this single statement. How can we bring this statement into practice? So we will examine within the family context what is love and how is it expressed? How is affection enacted? And what does it mean to sacrifice? And what is sacrificed? Now we the parents are the architects for the family, so we have to be the agent of change in our families. Gandhi said, you have to be the change you want to see in the world. Often we think that life would be perfect if we could only get other people to change. However, change does not come from outside, from changing others, but from changing within, i.e. from changing ourselves. So if we want our families to change, it is us that has to change. And the following are a series of principles or traits that are conducive to strong and happy family life. And the first principle of family life is love, and it's the most important one. So the relationship between family members needs to be loving, affirmative, supportive and unconditional. We relate to complete ourselves. The creation is a place of mutual dependency, and thus how we relate to people and events totally determines our experience of life, not the people and events themselves. We may have little or no choice as to how the people in our lives behave and the events that befall us, but we have complete choice as to how we wish to respond to them. And this is man's essential freedom, and it is essential that the existence of this freedom is appreciated. I don't know if you've ever heard of Victor Frank. He was a Jewish man, um, a psychotherapist, and he was incarcerated in one of the concentration camps in the Second World War. And this is what he said. We who lived in concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts, comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. So we have total freedom as to how we wish to relate to people. The second aspect is that feelings are mutual. Again, Sri Shankaracharya said feelings are mutual. Love is met with love and hate is met with hate. And the implication is for us is that however we choose to relate to people, that is how they will relate to us. So if you ever wonder why people hate you so much and argue with you so much, now you know. Now there are many different ways we can relate to people. These are all obvious, but I'll just name a few. With unconditional love, with conditional love, aggressively, harshly, judgmentally, supportively, encouragingly, caringly, passively, fearfully, domineeringly, possessively. All these sorts of things. Having freedom of choice, we need to choose the emotional ground with which we relate to people. So some people always meet people with suspicion. Some people meet people always with fear. Some with as if they're superior to other people or inferior to other people or aggressively or all these sort of things. Now if we are aggressive then we will be related to with aggression or passivity. We get the same back or its direct opposite. So you get either somebody who shouts back at you or somebody who goes very quiet and resents you from inside. When we go into a house, we can tell by its atmosphere as to how people relate in it. The emotional ground of the family. It could be tense, serious, strained, humorous, caring, hospitable, formal, informal, competitive or whatever. And when in the family there is any of the following aggression, passivity, domination, criticism, hypersensitivity, low self-worth, extreme dependency, fear of failure, martyrdom, timidity, anxiety to please, constant complaining, manipulation, ridicule, irritability, withdrawal, workaholism, perfectionism then the basis on which that family relates needs to be examined. Now none of you would have recognized any of those uh, features. (laughs) But if those features do apply in a family they are the product of an impure emotional ground. They produce all these factors. The only true emotional ground for a family is one of unconditional love. So the question for us is what is the emotional ground for our family? Only when we relate with unconditional love will there be a home, which is a pleasure to be in, a joy to return to, and a delight to bring one's friends to. The next factor with regard to love is that love is a verb. The feeling of love arises from the activity of loving. If there is no love in, then one day there will not be the feeling of love. Sometimes people say, I don't feel any love anymore for him or her. Well, it's nothing to do with him or her. It's when you stop the activity of loving the other person, then the feeling goes. To grow stronger in love is to enact it. And it is relatively easy to say that we love, but love being a verb is only fulfilled when it is truly enacted. And in the strong family love is enacted daily. To help us enact love we should open a family love account. Each day we and our family members should make lodgements into that family love account by enacting love in the form of affection, affirmation, praise, gratitude, support or sacrifice. If we do this, if you actually introduce this into the family, you'll find that particularly the children will respond to this with remarkable endeavours. They'll be running up to you every ten minutes saying they've just made a lodgement. (laughs) Unfortunately, by saying it, they're sort of making a withdrawal. But anyway, that's the way it is. Anyway, every day, everybody is asked to make daily lodgements. Now, not once a year lodgements like when you bring the whole family to Disney World or something like that that doesn't work. So daily lodgements and we should seek out and find little ways to express our love on a daily basis. When our children were young, this is many years ago, you couldn't get polo fruits in Ireland. You know polo means, but you couldn't get polo fruits. So when I went on philosophy residentials in England, I would come back with a packet of polo fruits for each of the children and say, these are special imported sweets just for you. Now, it would cost about a euro, but the value I got out of that wasn't remarkable. <laughs> now, the question for each member of the family is, are they taking more than they are giving? Families become rich by giving and are bankrupted by taking. So see how wealthy in love we can make our families be by making daily lodgements to the family love account. The next aspect of love is that much love that is felt is actually unspoken, which is a tragedy. So it needs to be expressed frequently. So at some stage soon, let there be a family lunch or dinner where everybody sits down together. And at this lunch or dinner, each person, no matter how young, on the basis that they can speak now, no matter how young, subject to the fact that they can speak, tells each other family member why it is so great to have that person as a member of the family. What it is that they admire about them, or what they have taught them, how they have benefited from them, or what they prize about them that enriches the family. They do not have to be long statements just what each would like to say about the other. And you take one member of the family at a time and everybody else then speaks about that person, why it is so great to have that person in the family. There may be some embarrassment, particularly by teenagers, but don't let that stop you. It can be helpful if one of the parents is the first to speak. Also, by dining out, it can add to it as a sort of a family affair. Now, if you do this, and it's a remarkable thing to do, absolutely remarkable, you'll be surprised by how valued you all are. And even more surprisingly, you will be absolutely stunned by what you're valued for. You will not be what you think. And bring the tissues... because there won't be a dry eye in the house the next factor is to do with surrender nowadays people particularly do not like the concept of surrender they think I want to be independent as if surrendering would deny your independence so there's much more emphasis on personal rights particularly to pursue one's own happiness However, in the happy family, there is much surrender for the greater good of the whole family. All relationship is surrender or sacrifice. It is surrender motivated by love. The basis of relationship in the true family is the needs of the family rather than the personal wants of the individual. And what needs to be appreciated is that if the surrender is made for the family, then all family members benefit including the one who's doing the surrendering. So surrendering does not lead to exploitation or martyrdom or a win-lose situation. It leads to a win situation, a win for the family and thus for all of its members. The greater the true surrender, the stronger the relationships in the family. And what matters in family is the strength of the relationships. Ultimately, the question we have to face is, what am I willing to surrender for my family? And this is not a once-off question, but a moment-to-moment question. And you'll find it's challenged all the time. And, you know, it's like if somebody asked me, or if my wife asked me, let's say she became ill and she said to me, look, you know, my kidneys are, whatever, down the Swanee, and the doctor has said that you're compatible and I need one of your kidneys. I wouldn't have to think for five seconds, that you can have one of my kidneys. So that's not a problem. But when I go down to the video store to pick a film that we're both going to watch, right. I am seriously challenged. She can have the kidney, but please let me pick the video. So I don't want to watch Tom Ryan and, or whatever, Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan anymore. I want to watch something that, you know, barely gets through the, the censorship because of its violence and uh, horrors and all that sort of stuff. And takes an immense Discipline here to surrender one's own sort of appalling tastes in films to consider something that we might both enjoy. Kidney, anytime.
1: time.
0: <laughs> and you'll find us that you will make amazingly large sacrifices for a family, but you won't go on a Saturday afternoon to pick the wallpaper. So how much I am willing to surrender determines the depth of love for my family And the depth of love will determine the strength of relationships. And this is an everyday question. The next factor is communication. And this is the second trait in the happy family life. In the family we all need to be shown that we are loved and we also need to be told that we are loved. And how often do we actually tell our loved ones that they are loved ones? When is the last time we told our teenage son or daughter we love them? Now communication involves listening and speaking. And the key factors to true listening are acceptance, so unconditional acceptance of the person who is talking, i.e. total. To listen unconditionally is to listen from the heart and then there is a response from love. If we listen from the head, there may be a reaction a fixed set of ideas. The second thing is interest. Total interest, which means fullness of presence, body, mind and heart. This is the only thing happening in your life right now that you're listening to that person. So do not be busy and listening. Just listen. If you wonder why teenagers stop talking to their parents, it's because their parents are always doing something while the teenager is trying to talk to them. Then they give up. Thirdly, with regard to time, give the speaker all the time in the world. Do not say yes, 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 hurrying them along, making them feel that there's something else we would prefer to be doing. As the speaker, we do not want to be put under pressure or else it will feel like one of those traffic cops urging you on. You know with traffic cops, they expect you to be able to get to 0 to 60 in about two seconds when they start waving their hands. The next factor is appreciating the need. And it's important to appreciate the actual need in the conversation. And this comes with empathy or compassion. Often the person does not want a solution. They simply want to be listened to. Listening shows interest and love and that is often enough for most people. They are not expecting us to solve the problem. They only want to share the problem. This is a considerable problem for the male of the species.
1: <laughs> Me-
0: men feel if they're intelligent that they can solve problems. But in fact, while they're trying to solve the problem, they're being totally unintelligent because that's not the need. The need is simply to share the problem. Another difficulty, particularly for the male of the species, is we should listen to the very last word. There may be lots of words, but we listen to the very last word. You know the way a child has only got two words out of its mouth, and the parent is already advising, criticising, etc. Or else one's wife is giving a detailed explanation on some matter, and the man's attention drifts back to the paper, or simply his eyes become vacant as he wonders whether Manchester United should ever have sold David Beckham. The next factor with regard to listening is one must get behind the words. Whenever a person is speaking they are always telling you something about themselves. So even if a person says you never listen to me they are telling you something about themselves as well as something about you. Do we appreciate that? i.e. that they feel neglected, not valued, or whatever. Normally we hear only the words. So we say things like, of course I listen to you, Am i listening to you right now. Does that make sense? This is a complete and utter waste of time. So normally we only hear the words, i.e. what they say about us, and then perhaps a reaction arises in the form of anger. If we hear what they are saying about themselves, then compassion arises. What is required is that we respond to the need, i.e. what they are saying about themselves, and not react to the words. The last factor with regard to listening is that we should listen first and speak second. So this is a useful discipline. Consider, do we seek first to understand the other person, and then for ourselves to be understood, or vice versa? Do we prefer to be understood first? The key is to seek to understand the other before we seek to direct them or influence them. When we understand first then we will not judge. Now, turning to speaking, we should speak what is in our heart. We speak the very last bit. We do not speak simply what we wish to reveal or we speak what is there. If the contents of the heart are not spoken then we cannot be known or we cannot know the other. If we are not known we cannot be cared for. If we do not know others they cannot be cared for. And this is what true honesty of speech really means. It does not mean simply speaking truthfully. It means speaking all of the truth and it does require courage and its fruit is fullness of relationship. Secondly, only speak when there is a listener. Do not speak when there is nobody listening, as it simply renders ineffective whatever has been said. Also consider the state and capacity of the listener before raising important matters. There is a time to speak, and it is not when we want to speak but when the listener can best receive what we need to say. You notice it particularly with teenage daughters. They ask you something important just as you're going out the door. The idea is to give you no time to fully consider what they're asking you, in the hope that you might just say yes as you rush. Now, one golden rule of relationship, and it is particularly important when it comes to communication, is that we take full responsibility for our own feelings. We never blame others for our feelings. And this is simply shifting responsibility or dumping our misery on others. Nobody makes us angry. We allow ourselves to become angry. And it's important to appreciate that we are completely responsible for our own feelings. We may have no control over whether others give us offence, but we have absolute control over whether we take offence. Nobody can force us to take offence. Now we all have feelings and we all have negative feelings. So how are we to inform others of our negative feelings without blaming or dumping on them? Well having taken full responsibility for the arising of the feeling we can express how we experience something. And this is not blaming, it's simply informing. It is a description of an experience, not a judgement as to how that experience was caused. It may not produce agreement from the listener, but if loved by the listener, it will produce compassion and understanding. Then the listener will be moved to remove any misery which has befallen us. And I've told this story before. Anne, who's my wife, we're married now about 31 years. For about the first 15 years of our marriage, every time a good-looking woman was in my eyesight, I would stare at her. And for about the first 10 years, of our marriage, Anne would say something. Every time I s- stared at a good-looking woman, she'd say something. She'd say, stop that, or why do you do that? And I would give pathetic answers like, I've just got weak eyes, <laughs> yeah. or look, t- this is the way I am, and leave me alone. And just really ridiculous reactions to her comments. Anyway, one day, I was driving the car, and she was by my side, and we were going down the road, and this good-looking girl or woman was walking up the uh, right-hand side of the road, so I looked at her. And Anne said to me, she said, you know, every time you look at another woman, it hurts me. That's all she said. She simply described her experience. There was no instruction to stop or anything like that. She just simply described her experience. And it it was one of those magic moments, because I actually heard what she said, and uh, in a nanosecond, a whole image appeared in my mind, and the image was that I was holding her hand too tightly, without knowing it, so that I was causing her physical pain. And she said to me, you're holding my hand too tightly, it hurts me. And I asked myself, all this in a nanosecond now, that if I knew that I was physically causing pain to my wife, could I continue to do so? Could I just say, well I don't care, this is the way I hold hands. This is my style of holding hands. And it became obvious that I couldn't. I couldn't just go on hurting her by holding her hand. And I said, if I knowingly cannot inflict physical pain on her, how can I knowingly inflict emotional pain on her? So I decided there and then to stop staring at good-looking women. You know, I'm not going to blame my wife. There's no blaming for my wife. But for 15 years she tried a different way then all that happened in this ignoramus was a reaction. So you can say how you experience something without allocating blame. And if you don't allocate blame to the other, then there's a good chance you'll get a response and not a reaction. Another factor with regard to communication is phrases which become part of the family repertoire and whose only effect is to irritate everybody or for them to be completely ignored. From parents, things like, how many times do I have to tell you? Just do it. We will see. (laughs) Which is basically a slow no. (laughs) Because I say so. Aren't I completely unintelligent? Because I say so. After all we've done for you. When I was your age, why can't you be like so-and-so? From the child, we get, how come I never get to? In a minute, everybody else is allowed to. He or she started it. You never let me when I was her age. Why do I have to? It's not fair. So gather the family together and agree a list of sentences that everybody promises will no longer be used in this particular family. They could be written out and hung in the kitchen or family room and a sort of a fine system and you could (laughs) donate. Charities would benefit dramatically until you learn your lesson. I think this is the last factor with regard to communication. One needs to consider the effect of television on communication in the family. In the United States by the time children leave school they will have spent more time in front of the TV than they did at school. Now, we may not be as bad, but we're not that far behind. The best way to look at this is to consider the following question. Because the thought of being without a telly is just like people would give up kidneys rather than tellies (laughs) at this stage. So, maybe that's too harsh. But it's a very useful thing to consider the following. If we reduce the amount of TV, what effect would it have on the family? What do we think the benefits would be to our family if there was not so much television watching? Now there is a family course which is presented in Dublin and this is one of the things that they're given. And the people who do adopt this, nobody has ever come back and said family life fell apart when we started to watch less television. People start to talk about how much more communication there was, how much sort of playing games together, how much more reading, all sorts of things. Nobody ever has come back the next week or the next fortnight and said it has proved detrimental to family life. If we wish for these benefits for our family we need to judiciously examine the family's relationship with the television. The next trait in the happy family is high self-esteem in the family members. Now do we wish our children to behave as we do? And what traits in our being do we not want them to inherit from us? So stop practicing whatever we do not wish them to inherit from us. Parents are the leaders of families, and because we are the role models, if we have high self-esteem, most likely our children will also. And if we have low self-esteem, then again, most likely so will our children. Characteristics associated with someone who has low self-esteem are perfectionism, bullying, dogmatic, withdrawn, workaholic, defensive, aggressive, fearful, and unadventurous. And characteristics associated with someone who has high self-esteem are positive, hopeful, willing to make mistakes, able to laugh at themselves, confident, etc., etc., Now, there are only two ideas, or all ideas, can be summarised under two primary ideas. And these primary ideas, if held in the positive, means you will have high self-esteem. And if they're held in the negative, you will have low self-esteem. And the two ideas are, I am lovable, and I am capable. And if you believe those two things about yourself, then you will enjoy high self-esteem. And if you don't believe them, if you think you're not lovable, or you're not capable, then you will suffer low self-esteem. Love allows people to feel lovable, and discipline allows them to be capable. So we give people love and discipline. And these are the two factors in all parenting. Now in what ways could we help our spouse and children to develop the idea that they are lovable? Well, we could tell them frequently that they are loved. We could show by hugs and gifts, etc. We could show that they are valued by listening to them, inquiring about their lives and interests and activities, etc. We could accept them as they are, allow them to fulfil their own dream, to grow in accordance with their own nature. We could praise their particular qualities or virtues. We could spend time with them individually. And we could help them to eliminate negative traits in their being. Lastly, and really importantly, is we would never, ever, ever compare them to another human being. So never, ever, ever do that. Do not say you're not as clever as your sister, or you're not as tidy as your brother, or whatever. You never insult a human being by comparing them to another human being. In what way could we help our spouse and children to develop the idea that they are capable? Well, we could encourage self-reliance, we could grant freedom with responsibility, we could increase tasks undertaken and this is a very important point, we are not doing them any favors by constantly serving them. The child needs to find out and develop its own capabilities. Always doing something for the child is subtly telling the child that it's not capable of doing it. We could praise work done, help the development of talents and skills, we could avoid the absence of comparison as said before, and we could say that mistakes and failure are opportunities for learning. Now a strong indication of high self-esteem is the ability to accept one's own shortcomings and then to do something about them. It educates all to take responsibility for oneself. So again this is another practice that every family can and should do. Each New Year's Day the family can sit together and every member of the family states the one thing that they would like to see change with regard to every other member of the family. So subject to reasonableness Everybody accepts these as their New Year resolutions. Does that make sense? So you get a chance, you'd say, well, I would just wish, you could say it about your wife or your husband, you say it about the children. I would just wish you kept your room tidy or you controlled your temper or whatever it is. And you get to pass a recommendation to each member of the family. They also get to pass one on you. So if you're the first to speak, be very careful what you say. (laughs) No, it's not true. In simple terms, everybody is helping everybody else to grow as a person. It's also very revealing as regards one's own behaviour. I remember my daughter when she was about 18, and we did this, my eldest daughter, and she said, Dad, I would like you to stop making smart aleck comments about my boyfriends. Now, I used to get immense pleasure out of this, <laughs> and it got rid of most of them, so... Um, <laughs> But anyway, I hadn't appreciated her sensitivity. Does that make sense? I used to just make smart remarks and laugh uproariously and all that sort of stuff. But all it was was, was hurting her. That's all it did. The only fruit was I got a bit of a laugh, but she was hurt. So you stopped doing it. Now she's married. <laughs> anyway. The next trait in the happy family is a strong sense of responsibility. To do our duty before claiming our rights is the way of love. The reverse is the way of selfishness, of me first. And do we recognize how often members of the family seek to demand their rights before they fulfill their duties? And just think of the difference it would make if we did our duty before we claimed our rights. Irresponsible children grow into irresponsible adults. We need to understand the relationship between responsibility and self-esteem. With responsibility comes the belief in one's own capacity to contribute and the feeling that each individual counts and makes a difference. And responsibility obviously means more than doing one's own chores, so-called. One is responsible for one's own emotional state and therefore does not have the right to inflict it on others. Whining, bickering, etc. should not be allowed. All are responsible for harmony in the home. So the family should expect members to live with the consequences of irresponsibility. So lost library books are paid for, actions are apologised for, and sanctions or withdrawal of privileges operate when responsibility is not fulfilled. If children are not taught responsibility, family harmony is not possible. All the sorts of problems that arise in later life, like alcohol, food and drug abuse, auto accidents, etc., are effectively lack of responsibility for oneself. With regard to spiritual and moral values, this, is the next principle in a strong and happy family. With regard to morality, the first thing is that the parents agree on the important values. So it's impossible for a child if parents have different values. They get confused and their loyalties are divided. Secondly, the parents need to teach them in a clear and specific way to the children. And thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, there cannot be a disparity between what we think, what we say and what we do if the family is going to enjoy a strong moral basis to live by. True religion is not a subject to be taught in a class or some religious duties to be carried out, but a way of living one's life on a day-to-day basis according to a set of beliefs or understandings. The next principle in the happy family is to give importance to the cultural tradition of the country and the family. So what are the cultural traditions of this country? So we could say things like hospitality, openness, celebration in success and failure, etc. We should consider them and then seek to develop them in the family so that as a family we represent the best in our country. The importance of grandparents in the passing down of cultural and family traditions should be appreciated. And the family should have its own particular rituals and these should be valued and passed on from generation to generation. Each member of the family should consider what family rituals they would like to adopt as a means of establishing a strong family identity. So again the family should meet and they should consider what things do we wish to establish as family rituals and then they should be enacted faithfully. So family rituals could be how birthdays and Christmases are to be celebrated, Sunday dinner together, the making of New Year resolutions as discussed previously, particular places the family visits or dines out at, annual get-togethers, all these sorts of things. The next trait in the strong and happy family is the time they spend together. Now, if the following applies to our lives, then we need to look at how time is spent in our lives. If there's a continual sense of urgency and hurry with no time to relax and rest, if there's an underlying tension resulting in irritation and sharp words, if there's a preoccupation to escape to one's room, the garage, the bar or the golf club, or simply from the house, if there's a constant feeling of not getting things done, if there's a tiredness from trying to coordinate family life, if there's a nagging desire to find a simpler life, and if one hitch, when it presents itself, causes the carefully constructed schedule to collapse, then there's a need to examine how time is being spent. Most people say that family comes first in our lives, but what do we actually put first in our lives? And if we look at our lives, is there a gap in relation to family, between what really matters to us and the way we actually live. In business we will be replaced, in a family we cannot be. There are many when they are dying say I regret not spending more time with my family and we don't want to die regretting. So if we were to die tonight would there be regret at the amount of time we have spent with family? Or if we had to do it over all again, would we spend more time with our family? Now, in April 1997, a US News and World report sets out how parents rationalize the amount of time they dedicate to work. Where I read it, the author changed the word rationalize into rational lies. Okay? And the rational lies are as follows. We need the extra money Daycare is perfectly good, the company demands it of me, and high taxes force both of us to work as we do. We may do a lot for our spouse and for our children, but what do we do with our spouse and our children? Parenting by proxy is not the same as parenting. It is not possible to pay someone to do for a child what a good parent can do for free. Now, leaving out the illusion of spending time together by watching TV together, what amount of time do we spend with our children on a daily basis? Doing something together. So Forget about watching, a, as I said, a television program together. Well, in the US, this is what a survey, a very large survey, showed. The average f- child on a daily basis watches what amount of TV? The answer is six hours on a daily basis. The average amount of time spent with the father is five minutes. And the average time spent with the mother is twenty minutes. When the mother is doing nothing else but giving herself fully to the child. So the question is on this basis, who's rearing the children? The television or the parents? The power of habit makes change difficult So to break the patterns, we need to do something firm. And what is required is a firm resolution that family time is non-negotiable and not that work time is non-negotiable. So how can we help to ensure that there is family time? And the need is to establish a family calendar. Firstly, both parents and the children write out the favourite things they like to do as a family. These should be gathered together by the parents and an actual family calendar should be developed, ideally by the woman of the house, because if it's the man of the house, it'll never happen. And this should then be hung in the kitchen. It represents what everybody promises they will do together as family. This does not necessarily include all members of the family in a particular activity, but it does set out all activities carried out by a number of family members. Now, in our house, what we did later on, when the children were a bit older, I told my son that I was appointing him CEO of the family. Now, he's interested in business, so he thought this would mean that he was going to become the chief executive officer of the um, family, and all authority would rest with him. But I explained to him that CEO meant he was the chief entertainment officer. (laughs) And his job which he did for about four or five years, and it was fantastic. His job was to scour the newspapers for what was on, whether it was a film or a play or a concert or whatever was on. Or just that he would organise, that we'd go for a walk or something like that, or we'd visit some place of historical interest or whatever it was. And what he would do is he would ring around the family members to make sure that everybody was available, And then he would use my credit card to book the event. Now, it worked absolutely brilliantly. I went to all sorts of things I wouldn't go. I went to the Roy Orbison story, the Mama Cass story. I went to art exhibitions, which I wouldn't ordinarily be seen dead in. Because when your son rings you up and he says, everybody's happy to go to X, will you come? You can't say no. You just can't say no. And I think of the number of Fridays that I would have come home feeling tired and just fallen asleep in front of the telly. But if he said, look, no, we've organised A, B, C, then you do it. So it was fantastic. The family needs to plan its usage of time, ideally via the family calendar, or else apathy, laziness, disorganisation, excuses will take over. It needs to be structured and not When we get time, we must do this or that. Because you'll never get that time. So schedule activities into the calendar. Do not wait for free time and do not let it be left over time. The key is to make the big and important things, i.e. family activities, immovable or else the little things will constantly get in the way. One other family activity which is very important is that the parents spend time with themselves alone and also each spend time with each child separately. So once a week the mother and father should have a time to themselves outside the family home, not bringing any children with them. And this is time to relate, to refresh, to dissolve any issues, to make family decisions, etc. And then once every couple of months each parent should spend time with one child on an individual basis. Now it could be a walk, a shopping excursion, a weekend away or whatever. So what I used to do if I was going down to Woody's or a DIY store, I would say to one of the children, come on with me. And then they would come with me and then we'd say, Hello. I'd say we'll go f- for lunch together. And then you'd talk to them or you'd let them talk to you let them tell you about their friends and what they were interested in, or was anything troubling them at school or at home, or anything like that at all. The time is for the child, to get to know the child, to meet him or her as she is now, to inquire into their interests and activities, to help relieve them of worries and doubts, to advise and give direction about their behaviour. For the period of time with them, it is to be as if they are special, in fact, that they feel at, in this time that they're the only person in the parent's life. So I heartily recommend that. But once every couple of months, you bring each child on a special trip. As It can be just down to the shops or it can be away for a weekend. And really get to know the child where they're at right now. Now to finish this, to have a great family, one must have a great vision for the family. And the establishment of a family charter does this. A country has its constitution and a family should have a charter. We did this in our family and I think it was perhaps the most satisfying thing we ever did as a family. We created a family charter and it just its fruits were absolutely remarkable. So, I've uh, made up a, a questionnaire which helps people to determine a family charter. And I'm just going to read some of the questions. So who is in this family? What is the family's purpose? What kind of family do we want to be? How do we wish to relate to each other? What kind of home do we wish to have? What is important to us? What do we want to be remembered by? What do we believe in? What principles will we stand for or live by? What traditions do we want to keep? What do we want to give to or do for our community or nation? How shall we assist the development of each member to their full potential? And what are the special gifts, attributes or talents as a family? And what are this family's goals? Now there are more questions than that. But the idea is you bring every every member of the family together, you give them these questions, they're asked to spend a week or a fortnight considering these questions and they come back with their answers. And then everybody reads them out. So they say, I think our family stands for this or our family belief is X, or this is our quality as a family. So what you do, you listen, you listen to everybody's input, you don't correct anything, and then one member of the family, normally the mother or the father, takes all the answered questionnaires and tries to bring it together uh, as a single statement. And uh, the idea is that everybody's ideas are respected, nobody's ideas are rejected, But you must get everybody to agree on everything. So it's not a majority vote. So either everybody agrees that we are such and such. So you do an initial draft and then you meet your children again and you read it out to them and then you revise the draft until everybody is happy to sign the family charter. And the idea is, if you can do it, It should be printed neatly, perhaps done out in nice calligraphy, signed by everybody, framed, hung in the kitchen or family room and then enacted. Now there are remarkable (coughs) benefits if you do this. It might take a month or two months to go through this process, just a couple of evenings together, but it is wonderful in its effect. First of all, it prioritizes everything. It produces clarity and security. It demonstrates and assists commitment, it gives unity of purpose and in action, and it provides a sense of stewardship to the parents. It's a reference point for decision-making, and it grants freedom within and under the Charter, like freedom under the law. Now, one important principle is this cannot be forced nor can it be rushed. There should be no consideration of length of the Charter. Both long and short family Charters are absolutely fine whatever fulfills your vision for your family. And finally, it should be reviewed annually. Time, experience and growth and understanding may all allow for refinement and enlargement of the original vision. So, I'm going to read out a family charter that was written by a family. I just think you might like to hear it. So this is what they said. Our philosophy is the unity of all. We worship our Lord Jesus Christ and believe in his message. The emotional ground of the family is strong, united, full of optimism, enthusiasm and humour. We believe we are here for a purpose, that we should live honest, upright, full lives, that we can make a difference and we wish to serve the universe in particular by serving our nation. Our tools are reason, love and wit, our home is peaceful, harmonious, devoid of fear, providing security with honest communication and hospitable to all. We believe in the equality of all mankind, the sacredness of life and the indissolubility of marriage. We have a strong pride in our roots and wish to uphold and value our cultural traditions. We respect the institutions and laws of our country. We value truth justice, service, love, charity, patience, gentleness and respect for ourselves and others. Our wealth creation and our energies are for the provision of good family life and the welfare of humanity. We accept our individuality and seek to encourage and help others to realise their full potential. We will never let any of the families suffer alone. We listen to discover the needs of others in the family and then help to fulfill them. Our particular strengths are idealism, power of speech, energy, perseverance, passion, loyalty and the belief that nothing is impossible. Our vision for the family is to be one of the great families of Ireland, to produce generations of leaders and to pave the way for those who come after us. Our priorities are knowledge, freedom, health and prosperity for all. Home is our centre from which we go out rested to meet the world and to which we return to be refreshed in body, mind, heart and soul. We believe that family is for sharing, companionship, an opportunity to express love and that it requires sacrifice, commitment and growth of being. We welcome all children who enter into our family We respect our elders, we look out for our neighbours and we endeavour to care for and uplift all. We wish to ensure that each of the children create a family which surpasses this one. We shall let our light shine before men and our works will glorify our Father which is in heaven. And we agree to use all that we have been endowed with to fulfil this charter. So, Your family charter is effectively your family Bible. It will guide you to greatness and fulfilment and it will help to establish a family that perhaps will become one of the great families of Ireland and will last 250 years at least. So remember that all of family life is based on love, affection and sacrifice. And with these three, happy family life is assured. So good luck with your family life, and thank you. That's it. So, would anybody like to ask a question?
1: I agree
2: with Margot on what she said about the social welfare system. I also agree with you on the values in the family, and I was wondering, in your opinion, How does one find the balance between the two?
0: In an ideal state, the proposition is that the family does as much as it can. And where it can't, then the community steps in. What you don't want is to destroy community spirit. You don't want the community always looking to a central government saying, the government can take care of that. You need certain things at an individual level certain things at a family level certain things at a community level and certain things at a national level so if Ireland was going to go to war it's not particularly helpful if Limerick declares war it should be the central government peace and law and order those things are handled by central government but other things are much better handled at community level and even sometimes better still at family level so what you do is You encourage the family, first of all, to take up its responsibility as much as it can. What it cannot do, then the community takes up, and what it cannot do, the state takes up. That's the idea. You'll find that it's very, very difficult for a central government to decide what are the needs of a local school. If they decide there are no computers this year, they issue a sort of a a statewide ban on new computers or sometimes they say there are new computers this year and then you have schools with computers that don't have any need for computers. It's handled much much better at a local level. So the whole thing is to find this balance. But the starting point is what can the family do? What it can't do, the community steps in. What the community can't do, the state steps in. And what the state can't do, then something like Europe would step in or the United States of America, or whatever.
2: It's actually like taking a pause. You stand back and feel the situation.
0: Yes, but it's, it's where you start. I use this analogy of the brick and the wall. If you want to build a strong wall, you must have a strong brick. You can't have weak bricks. And the family is where you get the first real sense of shared love and affection and sacrifice and surrender. Where people give up things for the sake mm-hmm. of others. So you see fathers or mothers at circuses where they wouldn't go to a circus ordinarily. That's my experience. Anyway, but have I gone to a circus with my children? Absolutely. Have I loved it? Yes, I've loved it because I've loved the happiness on their faces. So one would so-called sacrifice an afternoon for the sake of a family member. Now, if you can make that very strong, then the community becomes very strong. And if the community becomes very strong then the um, society becomes very strong. The other way doesn't work. You can have very strong government and a society that just breaks up. Does that make sense as as regards the starting point?
1: That one must keep building.
0: Yes, but it's important to get the starting point. Nowadays, there's tremendous looking to government to solve the problems. I just say this, for a long time... Irish people look to the government to create jobs. The government can create employment, but it can't create jobs. It is much better if the people create their own jobs. What the government should do is provide an environment which encourages people to work and to create wealth and share that wealth. So it just the danger is, is when you keep looking to a government which basically has law as its basis and not love, to satisfy the needs of a family, where love is the basis of a family. Yes, anybody else?
3: What can uh, a government do, in this case the Irish government, do to foster family values? Because the inference from your talk seems to be that, that the government or the state in some way has contributed towards this demise of the family as an, as an entity or as a unit, and we have somewhat become dependent on the state. Of course, that gives the state a lot of power yes. and influence over it. So in order to reverse that trend, what should the state, or what should we be demanding of our TDs and so on, which will ensure that the, the tide is reversed and that the state becomes more a servant of the family yes. rather than leaving the family as it is now more dependent on the state, yes. as you've described in your lecture.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know if actually the government can do an awful lot I mean it may be like the British Labour government where it decides it will promote family values and it will have a £50 million ad campaign and things like that which I think will only have nominal effect my own belief is that it's up to people themselves I don't think you can look to the state to contribute greatly about this other than to make sure there are, that none of its laws are against family I don't think it should actively contribute to the breakup of family life but I don't think it can do very much on a positive basis. It really is up to people themselves to value their families rather than the government to value your family or all families. It's a much smaller unit. So within the family, I I don't know what it's like in other families, but in, in my own family, we have conversations about family. So I say to them that the family is much bigger than the people who occupy this particular house. So it's not just myself, my wife, and the four children. There is a responsibility to my brothers and my sister, and there are responsibilities to aunts and uncles and... Who did I leave out? Did I mention my mother, right? And my mother, the unforgettable mother, and also to my nephews and nieces. So I would encourage that bigger view so that my sons and daughters, or my son and daughters, recognize that when they become adults that what's been asked of them is to not let hardship befall any member of the widened family, any troubles, so that they would care and help others as much as they can, rather than think it's just the ones who live in this particular house. And I think that can be done. You can give them a much bigger vision of family life and how important it is. and Then you don't really need the state to help in any way. I think it really does come from within. In the last year, my son did what I thought was a despicable deed and managed to get caught, and so I had to have a conversation with him. The the conversation that was had with him, I, I said I felt he'd let down the family, that we stood for something, and we didn't do the thing that he did. That wasn't on our agenda. And that he was now an adult, and he still wished to live at home, so he could support the family value by desisting from that. So rather than appeal to him as a person, the appeal to him was as a member of a family, belonging to something greater, and pointing out to him that you know, by doing that, he had affected every other member of the family. Recently, a family that I happen to know very well, one of the sons was caught with drugs, soft drugs but drugs. Guardie raided the home. One o'clock in the morning, everybody out of bed. They searched the house, and eventually the news trickled out, so everybody knew this had happened. And what the daughters said to the son was, "You know how ashamed they were to stand in their sort of dressing gowns while officers of the law searched their home for illegal products." And I thought that was very, very good. They spoke of what he had done to them, rather than, you shouldn't take drugs. They weren't appealing to him at a personal level. They were appealing to him as a member of a family. I I know the young man, he's a fine young man, but I think it hurt him at a much deeper level when he realised that he had hurt a wider number of people. If the family is to be strong, it needs to be fundamentally self-reliant. And if you take a wide enough concept of family you will find multiple talents and multiple strengths. Some nations are very good at this. This might be a bit romantic, but the Italians are very good at this. You know that if somebody is not that intelligent or doesn't have good fortune, some rich member of the broader family will establish them in business. They help them. And this is really how the weak are helped. Helped out of love rather than becoming dependent on the state because the state will have its bad times and when it has its bad times it will turn off the supply of money you know, we're enjoying good times now but when the bad times come wait and see what happens to social welfare raises but families don't turn off the supply so you really can help the weak so I think it is really rather than look to the government what is required on the basis that you're a family man that you look to your own family And you decide well. How can this family be strengthened? What would
3: strengthen it? Myself and my wife were just having a chat at the break there. Yes. And the one thing that young people like to do is eat. Yes. There's no argument about that. They just like their food. And what we found over the years is the one thing that's important in our family is mealtime. Yes. Sacred. Yes. And they understand that. That that's the one time they come together. They sit together. Yes. To give everybody else attention. To listen, to talk, to turn off the television. Absolutely. And it happens when we are together. It's now the one thing that we do well together. Yes. Well, uh, excellent. Uh, so meal time I find, you know, particularly because they like their food and because their mother cooks a good meal, that's important. The to healthy combination. Yeah.
0: <laughs> the desire for food and good food. No, absolutely. It is important that the family comes together on a regular basis, and it's much more than just the food. This is where real conversation can take place. Real conversation. And as sort of family, it's not, hopefully, it's not a lecture by the father and the mother to the young. It is much more a sharing of views. That is absolutely excellent. Well, at this stage, the
3: father and mother do most of the listening. (laughs) Well, that's,
0: that's even more excellent. More excellent. But that's quite rare nowadays. Quite rare. These things are all absolutely possible. You know, if I travel away from home, I ask my children to care for my wife. That's what I ask them to do. I say, when I'm away, I want you to make sure that your mother is cared for, so that they have that sense of responsibility. One day I may not come back, I may be knocked over by the bus, and I want them to have that sense that their mother is not to be abandoned or whatever, that they really do care for her that I don't come home and find that there's a, a whole list of things to do that my son and daughter were absolutely capable of doing while I was away, that they should do that to make sure that the house continues to function properly. So you can instill these values, and it's important to get a value. And everybody loves belonging to something bigger. Sometimes at a Christmas meal. you look around the table and you see the three generations or whatever it is, and a broader number of people, you can feel good belonging to a greater unity. And if you sometimes, say, in, in terms of sport, and Ireland win a match or something like that, again, that tremendous joy of belonging to a bigger unity. Well, family is the first step away from individual existence to join a greater whole. And in a way, if you don't make that step, it's very hard to go beyond it. If you can't find unity, if you can't have love, affection and sacrifice in a family, you'll find it very hard to develop that for your community or your nation. So it's a great training ground to develop statesmen and women. you know, World-class men and women.
2: You said something there about it, that you said to your son that you felt you felt that he had let the family down, and I thought that was a little bit harsh because, recently, one of our children felt he had let us down, and we had said, well, if he had let anybody down, maybe he had let himself down. He was upset when he was speaking to us, and he went on to say that he went away back to a time in school where the teacher had written home a note complaining about him and My husband sat down and he wrote a letter back telling his teacher that he thought he was talking about two different children that he saw he, he told the teacher all the qualities his child had, and it made an awful difference to his relationship with the teacher then but What struck me when you said the words was that he was so upset that he thought he was letting us down. And I think that, maybe I'm trying to advise you, and that's really not what I want to do, but there's, there's more that has to follow when you say to your son, you let us down, because what has to follow as a family after that is, when he reforms, if he does, you have to say to him, well, I have to admire you. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, I just, I thought the words were very harsh. My personality, I'm a softie, and I would get it hard to say to my children, you have let us down, you know. Yes. I think it's very
1: strong.
0: Uh, absolutely. Very strong. Absolutely strong. strong. Oh. Deliberately so. <laughs> say, and uh, make it a when a child breaks free from you and is going to run across the road in front of traffic you're not soft you let out a scream to stop it in its tracks now this was not some by the way there's no great crime that he committed I just felt it was quite bad behaviour and out of character for him and what was necessary was to stop him in his tracks because the individual sense of responsibility hadn't worked he was quite happy to behave like this from his own point of view. But if you could point to him that the, this family didn't stand for that, then you were appealing to something greater. I'll give you an example. Quite often one doesn't have the strength to do something for oneself, but you can do it for another. So I'll just give you a, it's only a small example. Well, it's not a small example, but there is a lady in the School of Philosophy in Dublin and she's, say, late 30s or early 40s, and her husband had died recently, and very unexpectedly in a short, sort of savage illness, and then he died. So when she came to meet me, she said that she was suicidal. I gave her all the philosophical answers about not committing suicide and had no effect at all. And I said, well, do you not wish happiness for yourself at any stage? And she basically said no. And she neither could respond to reason for herself, nor did she have the strength to do anything for herself. Anyway, she had two daughters, has two daughters. So when she couldn't respond herself, what I said to her, I said, well, look, do you have any sense of what your unbelievable misery and your desire to commit suicide, what effect that has on your two daughters? I asked her just to consider that effect. And asked her, you know, that one day her two daughters may marry. And if they had to go into a marriage with the fear that if their husband dies, that they would be suicidal, it means they will always be worried. I said, imagine what it would be like if you could overcome this misery and live a happy and full life after the death of your husband. What an unbelievable example that would be to your two daughters. So I asked her, did she think she could do it for her daughters? And she said, absolutely. She couldn't do it for herself, but she could do it for her daughters. So quite often, when you appeal to something greater, like a family, you give the person the strength to do what they couldn't do themselves. That's the reasoning behind it. And also, at times, the words have to be pretty shocking to wake the person up. But the key is for them to have no trace and when, when myself, my son, had this conversation and it was a pretty challenging conversation and I said all these words, i much worse. So, And then he apologised unreservedly, which I asked him to do. And then I said, well, would you like a cup of tea or a cup of coffee? Then it's over. It's completely over. It oh, absolutely. oh, of course. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The whole idea is...
2: He thought he had let us down. And I just was, had a fear of that sense staying with the child. I can't let my father down. I can't let my family down. And that maybe it would instill a fear in him. That was just. A- Again,
0: there is a way out of that. This is getting into parenting. But anyway, my eldest daughter was about 13 or 14. She was starting to go her separate way, as they do around that age. I said to her that I loved her and that I always would love her. And there was nothing she could do that would ever make me stop loving her. However, there were many things that she could do that would make me angry or annoyed. But I would never stop loving her. And if, on those occasions where there was anger, to remember that always, that the love was still there. And just to tell you this sort of amusing little story, she was about 13 at the time, or 14 at this stage. And she was babysitting, for this man and the man was giving her a lift home and talking to her and he said "Uh, do you go out to dances and she said no my father doesn't let me and he said well why don't you you're 14 now you should be sort of growing independent of your father and mother and she said well my father doesn't let me and I don't and he basically ridiculed her for not expressing her independence at that age It was the last time she ever babysat for him, but anyway. But she ended the conversation very simply. She said, my father loves me, and I trust him. Now, when you have that as the solid basis, unconditional love, then you can have a conversation with your son or daughter and say, you've absolutely let this family down. And it's disgraceful and whatever it is. But it doesn't impair the love. Does that make sense? It, that is undisturbed. It's unshaken. We would also have had the conversation
2: that he would always be loved. But still, what shocked me was the sense that he had let us down, which we didn't think he had let us down. You know, so...
3: Yes. Well,
0: my son knew he'd let us down because I told him. <laughs> anyway, it didn't impair the relationship. And by the way... These are not general rules. That's a particular father to a particular son in a particular situation. At times it would be a terrible imposition to put on the son or daughter that a family has been destroyed and all that sort of stuff. So you wouldn't do that. But in this particular situation, it worked and it was right for... Him. I'd like to ask, with regarding the charter, how do you develop the charter and how long... I, I know it should take a couple of months, but to get a family involved into the charter I think that probably the best thing is to say what we did in our own family so I mean, what we did was uh, I told them I said look there's this idea about developing a family charter and I said I've been thinking about it and I've drawn up 19 questions and would we like the idea of stating as a unit what we stand for and what our goals, ambitions, and contributions, etc. So there was a yes response to that. Everybody's given 19 questions to reflect on. Now there could be more questions, but anyway, this particular questionnaire has got 19 questions with plenty of space. And the idea is privately to go away and think about them, and to bring the family to mind, not to bring yourself to mind now, but to bring the family to mind as a single entity and to answer these questions as you perceive the family. So, now with holidays and a few other things, I think we met four weeks later, and everybody had filled out the questionnaires, and so people read them out, what they had written, we all listened to what everybody had to say, and there were quite a number of common things, and there were some individual things, and then various people brought to light things that other people had not thought about. So, as it so happened, I, it would either have be been myself or my wife perhaps, but anyway, I was selected as the one to try and bring it all together. So I had the five of them, I read them a, a few times each, and then I laid them out and started to write. And that took a couple of goes before the English became clear and all that sort of stuff. There's myself, my wife, and there are four children. That was given to each person, they were asked to read it a few times themselves and see what they thought. So then we met again, and they had comments to make, and they said, well, I think this should go in, and some of them felt that they hadn't been fairly represented, so I said, okay, well, what we do is, here are the six filled-in questionnaires and the attempt at producing a draft charter. You consider the six questionnaires and see what you would like to include or change in the charter. So they came back, then I got back, Six revisions of the Charter now, where they either added words or changed words or put in new things. And then I took a look at the six and tried to bring it all together as one, and eventually did bring it together as one. We all met again, and then we agreed it. But it was a fantastic experience. I don't think we've ever... we were just so much a family unit. And what was really inspiring as well is how different people saw the family. Some of the observations of the children were outstanding. Outstanding. And it brings out the best in you. You don't say, well I hope we're good at tiddlywinks. It brings out great idealism and universal emotions and high principles, all these sort of things. And it makes you feel as if you belong to something greater than yourself. That this family unit is worth something. That something has been created. Six people have come together and have created something which they'll stand by. So I just thought it was marvellous. I glowed for months. (laughs) And I really would recommend it. I think it's a fantastic thing to do. Now, by the time this idea came into, say, my mind, you know, the children were aged anything from, I can't remember the specific ages, but let's say from 20 down to 8 or 6, I might be wrong there, by a few years. But that sort of age... So we had Jessica, who didn't understand some of the questions, let's say aged eight or ten or whatever, or six, and her mother had to explain to her what some of the questions meant. I mean, this is only amusing, but one of her answers, what what are the qualities of this family? She said, well we're all very good at gardening and mummy's very good at looking at us doing it from the kitchen. (laughs) (laughs) So that one didn't make its way into the family charter. The honesty I mean, even that is a fantastic answer. But the honesty in the answers, and as I said, the individual inputs were were inspiring. I was really inspired. And sometimes you can think that you're the family, that you or your wife are the family. And then when you hear your children speaking in a really intelligent way, you suddenly realise there are six human beings in this family and not two human beings and four rats. (laughs) What my wife had to say really inspired me and what each of the four children had to say. I was stunned. We said things that we've never discussed. So I think it was a great opportunity for lots of good to come out of. Does that answer the question? Yes, it does. Yeah. Yes. anybody else?
4: Just You're talking about family and like marrying children. Just yeah. How do you s- suggest the person to charge her? who hasn't got that
0: kind of family? What sort of a family are you thinking of? Well, uh, first of all, you don't have to have children to have a family. Most people uh, have parents themselves and they've got brothers and sisters. So you are a member of a family. Like a husband and a wife or two people together is a family. So it's a different type of family. I mean, if there are lots of children, it'll be one type of family. If there are no children, it'll be a different type of family unit. It would just mean it would be a different charter, or it would be a different family environment, but it would still be a family. Family is a very broad concept. While I spoke about husband, wife, children, granny and granddad, and that's a very standard situation, I think family is a very flexible concept. The quotation that I used from the Shankaracharya I think is brilliant. Family are those who are bound together by love, affection and sacrifice. If you accept that as a definition, so man and woman bound together by love, affection and sacrifice make up a family unit. Yeah, but that's what I'm
4: saying, you know, can you, with siblings, can you, do you know anybody who did a charter around growing up family rather than, to, you know, with a family
1: unit?
0: No, I don't, but I don't think that would be impossible. The only reason I don't is because the only time this is ever used is on the family course. And those who come to the family course tend to be parents, you know, with children. Sometimes, actually, some grandmothers have come as well. And I remember a particular grandmother who came and I I encouraged her to gather her family around and see would they be willing to create a charter. So I think it could be initiated by a brother or a sister and say, look, what about doing this? So I think, yes, absolutely.
4: It's just that they don't live together. Yes,
0: I don't think you have to. Like, for example, say, in our family now, there's three of them who are not children, but two of them are now married. One of them has two children herself. That doesn't mean we're still not a family unit. Whether they lived in Australia, we're still a family, albeit we don't cohabit anymore. The time will come when they may wish to establish their own family charter, like the children will decide that they wish to establish one for their particular family unit. I don't think cohabitation is a thing. As I said, if our children lived in Ireland, England, Australia, and America, I still think we're a family. You know, we're still bound together by love, affection, and sacrifice. I
4: was just wonder the must change. No, it's, it's decided upon. Does anybody come back and ever say, you know, oh, I've changed my ideas about that?
0: But... In our case, it hasn't changed. That's because we're pretty rigid in our thinking. (laughs) No, but uh, in our case it hasn't changed. Mainly because I think perhaps our children were quite mature when they made their input, is one thing. I could see that if it was made with younger children it would definitely evolve more. But I think it should be looked at, reviewed. Just like a country's constitution, new things arise and uh, changes have to be made in order to meet current situations. So I think it should be reviewed, but the reality is, at one level, the better it is, the more universal it is, the more principled it is, the less need there will be for frequent change. So that's it.
4: Thank you.
0: Anybody else? Back onto
4: your example of your family, and um, I have a question on family myself, and um, was intrigued with the example of around the table sessions and saying nice things to each other and similarly with
1: the idea of when you give your, your son the CEO role, at what age, what
0: profile did your children have? What ages were they when you would introduced these various ideas? I mean, he was CEO at 18 now, so you, you can't have a five-year-old becoming the CEO because they'd be saying, can we go to the park every day? <laughs> so. so
4: your Jessica would have been partaking in the art trips, the gallery trips.
0: uh... Yes, but also what was important was that each of the events was such that everybody would enjoy. Mm -hmm. So Jessica, as a, let's say an eight-year-old or a ten-year-old, was not being dragged Mm -hmm. to things that she didn't want. The whole idea was that the family wanted to do this together. Now, it wasn't all events like plays and things like that. I mean, sometimes it was just going for a walk that we would walk along Dunleary Pier or walk along Greystone's Beach, but just things we wanted to do together. Anyway, I've just found it very useful to have an enthusiastic, in this case young man, who was willing to put the effort in. Because we ended up doing an awful lot of things, as I said, that we wouldn't have done had there not been such an enthusiastic young man. I think that if you use a 12 year old or a 14 year old, I still think it would work but maybe not as effectively. It would take a while as the person became older.
4: My profile would be the eldest would be eight.
0: Yeah. So, well, then you can be the chief entertainment officer, <laughs> you know.
4: If you give the responsibility, as you're suggesting, to the eldest and get to scan the, the advertiser or something, she would pick appropriate activities then <laughs> to earmark it in the calendar and make sure that... You know, put
0: stuff well, I think what you can do as well is, let's say you had an eight-year-old, you could say, well, now, every so often I'm going to allow you to pick the event. But you must take into account what Daddy likes, what Mummy likes, what the other people like, and it's your job to pick something. Now, you'll have to guide them, uh, or else you'll end up at McDonald's, as I said, you know, all the time. <laughs> but you'll have to guide them a bit. But you'll have to also let them, in a way, you have to give them some response, so they may pick the film may not have been the film that you would have picked but that sort of thing but it's very very good to make them think as family I'm just going to divert for a second I just have found it very useful or we have found it sorry I and myself found it very useful to constantly refer to the family so we say things like we are Mulhalls and Mulhalls do this and Mulhalls don't do that because sometimes it's not possible to do something for yourself, but you can for a family. So the example I've often used is that in times of war, men and women will lay down their lives for their country. If there's no war, they wouldn't even pay their taxes type of thing, but they would lay down their lives for their country. So it's very useful to appeal to a larger unit. And what we try to do in our family anyway was... N- not, now, not to disown their individuality, because they're all completely different, and that needs to be absolutely honoured. They have different temperaments, talents, interests, all that sort of stuff. But also to appeal, as I said, to larger units. So we used to try to appeal to them as Mulholls, also as Irish people, and then also as human beings. So I remember when my son was uh, going to America, and he was... 19 or 20. He's going over for a summer. And I said to him, you know, the minute you open your mouth people will know you're from Ireland. As you try and say 33. They'll know you're from Ireland. So whether you like it or not you're going to represent your country. And how you behave will influence how people see the people of Ireland. And I said you should consider that when you're behaving that you represent Ireland at its best and you know, he took that to account and that would have been an awful lot better than saying like, I don't want you drinking more than four pints in a night and I don't want you doing this and that but you're to something positive that you are an Irishman, you are abroad, people will see you as that and you should represent the best of this country and I think that gave him strength to behave let's say better anyway than he would have behaved otherwise <laughs> That's a very important thing, and it's very important, just to go back to the family, to emphasize family values. We have tried to say, look, this is what this family stands for. And people are sort of proud about that then. There's a sort of, a, now a good pride, not a mm. stupid pride, but a good pride about that. And it brings a sense of unity. We have one son and three daughters, but I remember, I mean, Robert would have taken it seriously about protecting his sisters. I mean physically, and maybe even more, but physically protecting his sisters. So when two of the sisters were older and they they would go out on a Saturday night, I mean he would watch out for them. You know, he saw that as his responsibility, as a family person. So I think it's very, very good to do that as much as you can, but you have to do that only if you act as a family. There's no point in just talking about family if the family doesn't act as family. Again, sometimes at Christmas, we would make a family decision. And some of this would be coming from the children now. In fact, it was very hard to live up to their standards at the end. I can remember uh, one Christmas, or the first Christmas anyway, Robert saying, you know, I don't think we should receive presents as we ordinarily receive presents. We have so much that there's no need. So what we did, we we bought each other pigs and hens and all these things, you know, for Africa. So I got two pigs for Christmas. (laughs) Again, it wasn't one person doing it, it was the family deciding, okay, this is how we'll do it. And I think that's excellent. But one thing that pleased me was that the children wanted, and still do, go away on holidays with us. Even when they were in their mid-twenties, they came away with us and they enjoyed being together as a unit. And I never overheard them talking about old people's home and euthanasia and things like that. <laughs> but that day may come. So, does that answer it? Yeah. Yes, anybody else? This lady here. I was wondering, is it too late if to children are 30 plus and married? No, I don't think it is. But obviously, as one gets older, one becomes more sort of fixed in one's way. So you may find, whereas when you're dealing with an 8-year-old and a 10- and a 12- and a 16-year-old, they're sort of inspired by this idea, I think you may find that people won't, in the same easy way, be attracted to strong family unity. But I think you have to present it so that they are attracted. And I I think the thing is this, is that where people are loved and they're valued, they like to go to. If you ask, what restaurants do you go to? You go to restaurants where you're honored as a customer and the food is good. But if the food is good and you're not honored as a customer, you won't go. So, you could cook the best food in the world, but nobody will come unless they're honored. In your case, are the children married at this stage? Yeah. Well, the thing to do is to encourage the family to come together. They may not want to or be capable of coming on Christmas Day, but you can take a a day around the Christmas period where the whole family comes together. You can have days where Granny or Granddad's birthday is celebrated and you try to encourage the children and the children's children or the grandchildren to come and to try and create these events. Like my wife's family is a remarkable family from this point of view. And there are five children and four of them are married and I can't remember how many grandchildren. So when we meet as a family unit, you know, there's 25 to 30 people in a restaurant or to celebrate birthdays or sometimes national holidays and things like that. And it is fantastic. And uh, at this stage, Mr. Feehan, who is my uh, wife's father, is dead. So it's Mrs. Feehan and she definitely is the matriarch of the entire unit. But, you know, she has made it so that the children, the spouses of the children and the grandchildren want to go to these events. So I think that's the thing to do, to create an environment that is attractive. Whether it would be practical to try and do a charter or not, I don't know. When children become adults, it may be the end of cohabitation, but it's not the end of family life. It's just going to express itself differently. But I would do it around special events. And I said, this real thing of honouring people, really honouring people, that people are allowed to be as they are. I was giving a talk to some young people. I don't know what it was about, but anyway, one young lady asked me, how do you know you love your wife? So I said to her, I'll have to think about that. That's not true now. I said, well, I said, when I'm with Anne, I'm absolutely comfortable. I'm not trying to be anybody. I don't feel under any pressure to impress or to be different than I am. I just am the way I am. And that feels really comfortable. And so I love being at home. That's what you try and create. A place where people can just be themselves. And then they want to come to that sort of place. Because most places you go to, you have to perform. Does that make sense? You, you're, you're some sort of performing flea type of thing. You're either a polite flea or an entertaining flea or something like that. But you're you're trying to have intelligent conversations. Well, the nice thing about family, real family, is you can just be yourself. So, that's it. Yes, anybody else? Lady back there.
4: I don't have a question for you. I just want to comment that I've thrown in Georgia short. Right,
0: very good. It's
4: very... Timely, I think yeah. it's very relevant. It's an opportunity for us to take that on board at the moment in the lifestyle that we need. But I'm also interested in the bigger picture of its impact on community. Yes. Uh, it's about the reliance on the government.
0: I don't think that people really appreciate how serious this is. The trouble with slow change is you don't even notice it. Now I'm going to give you a horrible graphic example of slow change. Apparently this is true. But if you put a frog into a pan of water and you turn on the heat until the water gets hotter and hotter and hotter, it will stay in the pan of water until it becomes a boiled frog. If you throw a frog into boiling water, it jumps out on the instant. So slow change is very dangerous change. Does that make sense? it 's a bit like whatever weight I was when I was younger, if I had put on that extra two stone overnight, I would have done something about it, but it crept up my ankles and moved up my body unbeknownst to me, so now it 's accepted as they say or reluctantly accepted. One wants to be very careful about change, and I just say something again, which sometimes people can get angry about this, but you might remember that there was a very controversial situation in Ireland around 1950 with Noel Brown and the Mother and Child Act. And now some of you are too young to remember, but my memory of it fundamentally was the idea was to provide free hospitalisation and care for the mother. And when you look at it like that, you can say, fantastic, know, marvellous that a woman giving birth to a child would be cared for, etc., etc. Et and as you know, the Catholic hierarchy spoke out against it. and from a PR point of view, took a hammering at the time and have taken a hammering ever since over it. Anyway, in the School of Philosophy, about 20 years ago, a a group of us who were studying economics decided to look at this event. So we managed to get the newspapers from the Irish Times and the Independent and find what people were actually saying. Now, it was extremely interesting. What the bishops actually said was... Now, forget about some of the archaic language aspect of it it is the responsibility of a man to provide for his family. If you take away this responsibility from him, he will become irresponsible and if a man knows that if he abandons his family and government will step in and provide all sorts of facilities which he would ordinarily have undertaken he will more easily abandon his family Now, in the Western world, the greatest growing poverty section is the abandoned mother. Now, they may not have said it very intelligently, and they could definitely use a a few PR people to help them say things and all that sort of stuff, but they did point out human nature. It's a bit like, if people would clean up the dirt after you, you're more likely to litter. Now, it doesn't mean that they were absolutely right and no Brown and his act was wrong, but they made, I thought, a very interesting point which needs to be reflected on. That if government provides housing, and if it provides for education, and if it provides for hospitalisation, and if it provides for pension schemes, then the danger is that people begin to neglect these responsibilities themselves. Now you have to find a way of caring for those who really need to be cared for without making large numbers of people become more irresponsible. I-, I do think that government has to be very careful in its policies that it really is promoting family strength. If you don't promote it, you'll have to build more prisons. You'll have to have more guardy, more courts, more judges, You'll have to have more psychologists and counsellors and all of these sort of things. When you take godparents away from your children, you take away two amazing friends. Amazing friends who are not prejudiced by sentimental love. Despite my best efforts, when my children were stating what their careers are going to be, you're hoping that they're not going to be ballet dancers and artists. Because all artists starve to death and go insane. You're hoping that there's going to be some money and security. Despite the fact that you willingly tell somebody else, follow your dream. (laughs) When it comes to yours, just follow the pension scheme and the security. But nowadays, godparents are nothing, if I may say so. I'm sorry, I'm sure some godparents really fulfill the role, but most of it is you just pick your sister and his brother type of thing. And it's a complete waste of time. Two amazing people who could play a remarkable part in people's lives. Grandparents, people move away, yet they move away from their parents. They move to different countries, they move to different cities and so grandparents play a very little role. Well you know, grandparents are amazing, it's an amazing function. I happen to be a grandfather now twice over. It's an amazing function. I think it's just fantastic and I think it's excellent for the child. Because it doesn't have that tightness, which can sometimes get into parenting. Mm -hmm. So it's very important that government supports family life. It'll make government life much easier as well, by the way. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, you know, nursing homes and creches. Then we want tax relief so that we can put people in nursing home, tax relief and put them into creches. Some of it, you can see, is necessary, but some of it is simply an abandonment of family responsibility. Mr. McLaren, the man who founded the School of Philosophy, told me this, and to me it seems to be true. He said that insurance came into existence with the decline of community responsibility. you ever see the film Witness and the Amish community? And when I think the people got married, so everybody built the barn. Nowadays, you couldn't rely on your neighbours to rebuild your barn, so you now need an insurance policy. (coughs) When parents began to not really care for their children as they were growing up, they created the very need for pension schemes. Because they could no longer trust that the children would care for them in their old age. This is what happens. If you're going to spend all your money on your luxuries, well then that's what your children will do. And then you'll become a real unaffordable luxury. I mean, I made a decision, I'll just say it's only a personal decision, but I made a decision as a young man that I wouldn't have a pension scheme. And I told my son when he was about five that he was my pension scheme. <laughs> what? I said, you have no idea how much I'm investing in you. <laughs> there are three girls as well. I told him, you are the pension scheme. That's the reality. I said, the one thing that I can trust is this, that if your mother or myself fall on hard times, that you will not abandon us. I said I don't trust that an insurance company or a pension fund will do that for me. But I do trust you. I'll tell you another thing that we just say in the parenting. Now this is very harsh. And whether it's absolutely true or not, but it's a it's a good point and it's good to reflect on it. On the parenting course, I tell the parents that the practice of abortion and putting young children to creches and daycare, is absolutely mirrored, or will be absolutely mirrored, by euthanasia and old people's homes. It's just the other end of the spectrum. And you will be put into an old people's home for exactly the same reasons as the child is put into a creche. Now the interesting thing, when I tell that to the parents, none of them ever think that their children will put them into an old people's home. 'Cause you look, I'm so entertaining and I'm so interesting. And why, why wouldn't people want me around? I don't eat too much. I'm willing to watch Coronation Street if everybody else wants to watch it. So why would they put me into an old people's home? But they do. They put lots of people into old people's homes who shouldn't be in old people's homes. And why? Because it's a bit of trouble. And what are the reasons? Well, they'll have a better social life. <laughs> it's just horrendous and it's all rational lies this statement by the, again by the Shankaracharya is so deep family are those bound together by love, affection and sacrifice and it's interesting that he uses love and affection because you could say well, they're the same but they're not affection is always demonstrated and sacrifice Nowadays you find people are very unwilling to sacrifice, to make any sacrifices.
4: Yeah, I was just not. going to say the sacrifice is starting to be the issue for us, you know, to take the other two words and not necessarily abide by the sacrifice. But in the same way as you just said about, you know, we you know, happy to tell other people follow their dream and you we're know, hoping you not, you know, become a validator, um, you know, actor, I think we're seriously challenged too then to stop the creation um, system to... Um, not work, not, 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 not
0: Yes, absolutely. Unfortunately, we don't face enough questions. Again, in the school of philosophy, one thing that's very important is that there is regular self-analysis. And I don't mean introspection and, oh, what an awful creature am I, that type of self-analysis. I mean of really questioning one's life, to make sure that you are following your dream. Again, just two things I'll say. One is this, in the family course, everybody's asked to write, what are the family activities we love to do? It was very interesting, the responses from the children. They are not things like going abroad on our holidays. They are things like playing cards together, going for walks, when you push me on the swing. All inexpensive, simple, joyful activities because that's what children really want they want your company they want to know that they're valued you know bringing them to Disney World so that the rest of the world can entertain them what about you entertaining them and you see if you don't learn to be entertaining you will end up in a nursing home (laughs) you know why shouldn't you be entertaining I don't mean that you have to have you know a thousand Irish jokes type of thing but you know why can't you be good company if you start worrying about society, you get very depressed. So what you do is you decide, you work from here out. So you say, I'm in a family unit. Now, whether I've got immature children, or there are no children, or whatever sort of family I have, it doesn't make a difference. There's a particular form to your family. And how may I enrich that family? I mean, England created an empire with just a small number of families. That's how they did it. I mean a family can really contribute to a nation's history, one family. But again, it's to have a big vision, a really big vision. And so that you participate as, let's say, in my case, as father, but you make sure you also participate as grandfather. And if I don't put on too much weight, I just might participate as great-grandfather. And that you really work hard at it, that you spend time with You start to pass down the values how things were in your day, all that was good in your day, you pass on these things. So it's inculcated into their being. But you've got to be very careful about sentimentality. It's one thing, again, that the Shankaracharya speaks out about, sentimentality. And depriving a man of the opportunity to fulfill his responsibility is sentimentality. Now, you still have to care for the needy. You have to absolutely care for them. But make sure you don't make a man weak. When I say man, a man or woman, weak.
1: I just wondering
4: if you wanted to comment on, it's, it's just a question, it's a sidetrack, um, the strengths-based philosophy, or if that's something you um, would think. What's it called? Strengths-based, like that we would work from a strength based philosophy in the way that we, uh, either in families, it's, family, no, it's very trustworthy what you're saying um, but also in communities and in the way that we empower communities.
0: Yeah, I mean, I haven't heard of it. Again, one thing that the Shankaracharya said, he said, always think of what you can do, not what you cannot do. It's marvellous when you see husband and wife complementing each other. So that, you know, the various talents are allowed to express themselves. And again, you've got to be careful with this sentimentality of, and i just make it between husband and wife now, that half the cooking should be done by the husband and half by the wife. Unless both are excellent cooks, it means that people really hate being at home three days or three and a half days a week. (laughs) Whoever is best at something should do it. You don't say to the heart surgeon and the plumber, look the heart surgeon, you do the first half of the operation and the plumber you do the second half. Whoever's best should do the entire operation and you certainly don't let your heart surgeon near the plumbing. The plumber should do it. Again in family, if I take our family, you know, and myself are quite different, but I believe complement each other. And the four children are absolutely different. But they have fantastic qualities. And the whole thing is to get them to work as a unit without loss of individuality now. And then it's a bit like twigs that you bind together. You can't break them. It's very important to look to your talents. And by the way, if you are going to be a ballet dancer, that's what you should be. And if you're going to be an actor or an actress, that's what you should do. Because the one thing that is absolutely true is this, is you cannot follow a career unless your heart supports it. Now you may have a job and you may get a salary or an income, but you won't have an occupation for your heart unless your heart is involved. I'll just say this is an amusing thing, but Oscar Wilde said, if you marry a woman for her money you will earn every penny of it. <laughs> and if you work for money, you will earn every penny of it and it will take everything from you. If you just think of some work that your heart doesn't support, it drains you, it leaves you with nothing. No matter what it is, it could be a very small job, but if you hate to do it. So it's very important to do what you love and it's very important that a family environment allows that courageous expression what you don't want is you don't want children believing that they are workers for an economy that is a terrible thing to do to a human being a human being is not a worker for an economy the economy is not God so you don't become slave to an economy you came into this world with a purpose you know, a particular, a unique purpose as well as an overall human purpose. And the idea is to find it and express it gloriously. And family is your support. That's the marvellous thing about family. So much is possible. Six average people working together can be a glorious unit. I mean, we've done it with soccer teams and rugby teams for years. Yes, anybody else? All right, we leave it at that. Thank you very much. (laughs)